Yeah, like Pastor Dave said, this will be kind of a more history-oriented TMT um, about division. So um, in our current era, we're not unfamiliar with division. We have a lot of it amplified through social media and everything, but this is nothing new. And in fact, uh, throughout Christian history, the church has gone through much division of its own. Um, and today we're going to learn about one of the splits in the church called the East-West Schism or the Schism of 1054. Um, and this divide between the Western Church, now known as the Roman Catholic Church, and the Eastern Church, known as the Eastern Orthodox Church, was a long time coming, and the causes of the split are pretty complicated. Um, for starters, the two sections of the church spoke completely different languages, Latin in the West and Greek in the East. This caused communication barriers and mistrust between church leaders for um, centuries leading up to 1054. Additionally, there were disagreements between the East and the West about what kind of bread was acceptable for communion, leavened or unleavened. The East got upset that the West changed one word in the Nicene Creed, and the East also allowed clergy to marry, while the West was increasingly strict on celibate clergy. And there was also the issue of political power as well. The Eastern Byzantine Emperor controlled the Eastern Church, but in the West, the Pope was the authority over the Holy Roman Emperor. Um, the Pope was head of the entire church, East and West, um, and then the patriarchs, which were the church leaders of the East, were technically under the Pope. However, some of the patriarchs, including one named Michael Cerularius, um, they were seeking autonomy from the strong papal control. So all of this culminated on July 16, 1054, when a cardinal from the West came to a prayer service in Constantinople, which is the capital of the Byzantine Emperor, Empire, excuse me, and delivered a notice of excommunication for that Michael Cerularius and the entire Eastern Church. And this was reciprocated when the East sent a declaration that Pope Leo IX and the entire Western Church were also excommunicated, and then the two distancing churches became distinct. These churches remained at odds for centuries until 1965, when the Pope and Patriarch of the time rescinded the excommunications of the other churches. And they're now more at peaceful terms, but they are still divided and distinct from one another. So that is the Great Schism, or the Schism of 1054. Good morning. Today's readings are Luke 12, 49 to 56, and Hebrews 11, starting at verse 29 and going into verse 12, 2. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, 
When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And in Hebrews, by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, of Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And these though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Jeannie. And thank you, Hope. You know, sometimes things have to get worse before they get better. No doubt you've heard that saying before, or maybe you've said it to someone else before in a certain circumstance. And depending on what circumstance you find yourselves in, that phrase can either be comforting or it can be terrifying, right? Um, if your life is going pretty bad already, uh, to hear those words is like, okay, well, I guess this is normal. I guess, I guess this is to be expected according to Jesus. But if your life happens to be going really well right now, you don't want to hear that. Things could go worse. Things, things will likely get worse before they get better. Like, this is not a positive and encouraging message from Jesus. Not like Caleb, that you don't put this on the radio. And yet Jesus tells us anyway, he doesn't care. Because Jesus tells us the truth no matter how much we don't want to hear it. And I don't know about you, but that really makes me trust Jesus. Like I said in the opening, 
um, to know that Jesus is not a, a snake oil salesman. You know, he's not hiding things in the fine print and sort of, you know, flowering things up and talking around things. He just tells the truth like it is. So, sometimes so abrasively that even his own disciples are like, man, we kind of like to leave too, but where else are we going to go? You know, Jesus tells us the truth no matter how unpopular it is. The famous poet W.H. Auden said, I believe in Jesus because he fulfills none of my dreams. I believe in Jesus because he fulfills none of my dreams. In other words, when you, when you read the Gospels, of course Jesus is going to fulfill our dreams someday in the future, as Christina talked about last week. When you read the Gospels, your vision for your life is often much different than what Jesus tells you. He has no problem trampling on your dreams for how your life should go. He's interested in telling you the truth. And we should mention that being a disciple of Jesus means you have to obey Jesus. It doesn't mean you have to love everything that he says. I mean, oftentimes I'm reading the Gospels and I'm like, boy, that just rubs me the wrong way. Do you ever have that when you read Jesus and you're like, boy, you know, Jesus, do you have a bad day? Or, you know, why are you so rough about this kind of thing or whatever? It's okay. Jesus doesn't mind. He's not going for likes. He's not trying to win friends on Facebook. He's not trying to win a popularity contest. He's just telling us the truth. You know, last week, Christina looked at the promise of the new world to come and how we are to live in light of that coming new world. It was this amazing time of imagination, thinking about what that will be like when Jesus returns and brings the new world to come. And it's, it's a really, really amazing positive sermon that had me really positive all week. And then I started reading all the texts for this week. And they're about judgment, and they're about division, and they're about persecution. I'm thinking, why this week? You know, I kind of want to come behind that with a nice positive message. But this message is the in-between message, right? This is the message that says, before all that really amazing stuff happens, it could get worse before it gets better. That's what's going on here. And to stick with Christina's illustration of getting ready for the new world to come, being much like new parents, getting ready for the new world of parenthood by welcoming a baby, there's something that every parent and especially every mother knows when getting ready to welcome a new baby, and that is that you have to get ready for suffering. Before you welcome the baby, there's suffering that must happen. Right? Before the, the laughter, there is wailing. Before that new world is realized, there's going to be lots of pain. And so part of the task of preparing for the birth of a child is preparing for the labor, the really hard part. And sure, you prepare for the fun parts too. You get the nursery all ready, you get the crib set, and you get the cute little clothes, and you're just all having fun and the toys and stuff. And yes, this is going to be amazing. But you got to take the Lamaze classes too. You got to learn how to breathe. You got to prepare yourself mentally and physically for this immense challenge, this, this terrifying event, honestly, called childbirth. And I have the utmost respect for you mothers in here, especially for you moms who have signed up for this more than once. You know, I, I think we can all agree, guys, like if we were having the babies, there'd be a lot of families with zero or one child. We're like, we're not doing that again. I mean, I saw the first birth, and I was just like, I don't know if I can go through that again. Like, how are you going through it? Why are you signing up for this again? Like, this is a really, really difficult thing. So, sorry, Jada and Dawson. You guys probably wouldn't be here if I was having the babies. It would just be live. And then I'd be like, I'm learning from that lesson. This is really, really hard. But some of you ladies sign up for this over and over again, and you know you have to get ready for the pain. That's, that's part of what it means to get ready to welcome the new world of parenthood in the same way Part of the task of Christian discipleship 
is preparing to suffer. And most importantly, preparing to endure. And Jesus wants us to be ready. That's the big point of this text. Look at verses 54 and 56. He's using this weather analogy. And I'm no, you know, I'm kind of an amateur weatherman because I'm a fisherman, right? So we're outside. We have to know. You don't want to get struck by lightning or something. And Jesus says, look, you guys know how to interpret the weather. And back then it was very important for them to know how to interpret the weather. So the same is true. Jesus is actually good at weather apparently because he says, when you see a cloud out in the west, if you're not familiar with this, This is a little meteorology lesson. Clouds out in the west is coming to us, right? That's where all of our weather comes from. All of our storms start out in the west, and they come and they move east. The crazy part is the wind is going to blow out of the east when you get a storm. I've never been able to figure that out. How is that possible? The wind is out of the east, and the weather comes from the west. I'm like, this is totally backwards, but that's exactly how it goes. When you get a wind out of the south, you can expect that's a warm front. Hot weather's coming. It's just like Jesus says here. And he says, you should be able to tell the signs of the time. There are two Greek words for time. There's kairos and chronos. And chronos is like, what time of day is it? Um, You know, it's a quarter after three. Um, And kairos is like, what season of time is it? it's, it's, It's a special time. And so Jesus is saying here, we're living in a special time that will require readiness from us. So we should be able to recognize it and prepare for what is to come no matter how hard it gets. That's what Jesus is saying here. And remember the context here. Jesus is saying these words in the midst of a larger section here in the Gospel of Luke that's all about readiness, watchfulness, and faithful discipleship. So Jesus loves us, and he wants us to be ready to endure suffering that is coming as we wait for the new world that he is, in fact, bringing. Now, There's lots of different suffering that we will no doubt face as Christians that we need to be ready for. And the first kind is just general human suffering because of the broken, fallen state that the world's in. And this is not unique to Christians. I mean, um, we already mentioned this. Allison mentioned two house fires that she saw. I actually, unfortunately, had a, a tragic accident on the road right behind our house where a motorcyclist was killed last night. And it's just like, oh, my word. What intense suffering goes on in this world. But we get sick. You know, our houses blow apart from storms. We get into car accidents. We lose loved ones. We ourselves die. It's not unique to Christians, but it is a suffering that all of us, all of humanity has to be ready to handle at any moment. So that's the, that's the first kind. But then Christians face two additional kinds of suffering that are unique to them. And we're shown both of them in our two texts here today. And the first kind is division. And this is the theme of the Luke passage. So really thankful for uh, Hope's TMT on the great schism of 1054. Like, we're not the only ones that face division. This has been going on for a while. But Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth. And how I wish that it was already kindled. I wish that it was already going. And it's like, what are you saying, Jesus? What, What does this mean? Well, fire back then was used as a purifying agent to separate the pure metal from the dross. And this is likely how Jesus is using this because look at the result of this fire. It's division. It's going to throw the whole world into an uproar, uproar, Jesus says. And in fact, you realize that even our dating system, all of human time has been divided by the arrival of our Lord Jesus, B.C. and A.D. Everything's been divided by Jesus. And that's the big idea. What you believe about Jesus, dear friends will change 
and divide literally everything, every relationship in your life. Christianity is narrow and exclusive. There are those who are inside the faith, and there are those who are outside the faith. And it's not because Christians are narrow-minded people. Often Christians get accused for being narrow-minded people, but it's because when you read the Gospels, Jesus is narrow and exclusive. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It's all narrow and exclusive. So either he's wrong or he's right. I don't think of it as narrow. Either he's wrong or he's right, but he's very narrow and exclusive. And we might say, Jesus, how narrow of you to say that about yourself? And he says, no, I completely agree. And in fact, my narrowness is going to bring division to every single relationship, every single home. I've not come to bring peace, he says, but division. And he was right. From the first century on, people, what people believe about Jesus has been dividing siblings, marriages, friends, coworkers, parents, and kids. And many of you know the pain of that division, don't you? It's awful. It's awful. When you have close friends or family members who to this day do not know Christ, it's a deep form of suffering to be in this sort of division, to, to not share the faith that's most important to you with the people that are most important to you. When, you. when you don't share that, that division is a certain kind of ache and pain that's hard to describe. Hopefully Jesus' words are of some comfort to you knowing that he anticipated that this would happen. This isn't a surprise to, to him. You're not in this spot because you did something wrong or because you're defective. It was bound to happen. He's, he promises it. We will face division with non-believers. But we even face division within the church. And this is what Hope was talking about. Going back to the, the big one in the church, but obviously the creeds were written because there was all sorts of heresies and divisions. And so this has been going on since um, very, very early in Christianity where Christians were saying, no, that's not Christianity. This is. And there's a dividing line there. Um, I was listening to a podcast by N.T. Wright some time ago addressing division in the church and how do we deal with division in the church and what's the right way to go about doing it. And I really appreciated it because I see um, N.T. Wright as a person really striving for unity. And he said, look, John 17 is clear. Jesus prayed that the church would be unified, that we would be one, even as he and the Father are one. And so we need to strive for unity uh, with everything we've got. But while we do that, we still need to know and understand the differences that make a difference. In other words, there are some things that Christians have disagreed on for thousands of years, and both positions are Christian positions, right? Um, these would be things like baptism. Do we baptize babies or do we baptize adults? The Lord's Supper, women's roles in the church, all these kinds of things have been disagreed on in the church. They're very important issues. They matter. We should be thinking carefully about them. But you can have two positions that are still what we would say under the tent of orthodoxy. Um, then there are other issues. Um, say, for instance, you, you don't believe that Jesus raised bodily from the dead. Well, that isn't a big, that is a big issue, and that's actually a, a teaching that's outside the tent of orthodoxy. That was, those kinds of things have been thrown around in church history. And so N.T. Wright says, it's important to understand the differences that actually make a difference, where one belief leads away from orthodox Christianity, and one le belief leads towards orthodox Christianity. And when I say, when I say orthodox, I, ortho just means right, 
And doxy means praise. So right praise or right belief is what I mean. And in seminary, one of my professors, I'm not sure if it was you, Nathan, or one of them said, think of it like a giant tent, right? And in the, you know, one of those big circus tents, and there's a big pole that goes up in the middle, and that's holding the tent up in the middle. And that big pole is the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's the load-bearing wall. That's the thing that's holding everything else up. You take that out, and you do not have Christianity anymore. And there's a lot of other core beliefs that go around the resurrection of the dead, things like we confessed in the Apostles' Creed today. But then there are other beliefs that are really important, too, that we would call orthodox beliefs of Christians, things that Christians have taught for 2,000 years about morality and the way to live life, that if you take those out, it's not really Christian practice either. So those are really important things. They're differences that make a real difference in salvation in how we go about living our lives as Christians, and they can affect the big picture. And so N.T. Wright's saying you have to know the differences that make a difference, and he gives a couple of good examples um, from Paul in 1 Corinthians. The first one is from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, where Paul is addressing the issue of food sacrificed to idols. So, of course, these Christians had come out of pagan culture and had done idol worship, and part of that was eating food offered to idols. And he says, look, some of you don't see a big deal of eating this food offered to idols, it's not a big deal. You're not going to be harmed by it. All food is made by God. It's not going to do you any harm. But you need to prefer your weaker brother or sister who if, they're, if you're eating food offered to idols and they are around you and it causes them to stumble or it's hard on their conscience and they, you know, all the smells bring them back to their old days of idol worship and, and tempt them, then he's like, don't do it. Just prefer one another, right? Prefer one another in love. It's a difference that doesn't make a difference. Um, food offered to idols. But then he gives another example in 1 Corinthians 5 of a man who's sleeping with his stepmother. And this is a little bit different. Paul says, he doesn't say, well, if you're into incest, that's fine. You know, some people like that and some people don't. No, he says, put that man out of the church. There's a very hard line drawn there. Paul says, this is a difference that's going to make a difference. If you adopt this sexual practice, it will destroy the fabric of your Christian community. So put that man outside the church, hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that he may be saved in the last day. So Paul's still seeking his salvation. He's not just being mean there. But those are two good examples of of the church seeking out differences that make a difference, um, disagreeing where where they are free to, and then needing to agree where they must agree. And that's part of our task as the church as well. And here at Life Church, um, happy to say, there's many, many things we disagree on. Many, many different beliefs on Christian teaching. We even have a document that's called Unity, Liberty, Charity that outlines some of the main beliefs where we find a wide variety of opinions and beliefs in Life Church. And um, we get that document actually from a little statement in church history that goes like this. I think it's helpful. In the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. So in those big things, those core beliefs, we've got to have unity or you don't have Christianity anymore, right? And it's our task to figure out what are those differences that really make a difference where we must be aligned or we cannot shake hands on the gospel anymore. And then in non-essentials, liberty, the freedom to dialogue, the freedom to disagree, the freedom to stay in fellowship with one another. We work together with lots of churches that do different things on different issues, and we have great fellowship and teamwork and mission, and it's great. 
But then in all things charity, and I think the last one's the one we forget most often, even when you find there's a big disagreement with someone, that doesn't give you permission not to act in love to them. Even if it's on a big issue, all things charity. And that's kind of what we've adopted here at Life Church, that no matter what disagreements we might have, we must operate in love. So the big point Jesus is making is there will be division because of him. There'll be division because of non-believers. There'll be division because of believers. It will likely get worse before it gets better. And that's the first form of suffering that Jesus says we will undergo as we wait for the new world that he's bringing. It's like labor pains, right? It's the really hard part before it gets really good. But the second form of suffering Jesus addresses um, elsewhere here in chapter 12 of Luke, and then it's made really plain in our passage from Hebrews, which is why I had Jeannie read both, and that's persecution. This is what Kimran was getting at today uh, in the prayer time. And from the first century on, Christians have had to think about and be concerned with persecution from the world. It's just, it's just happened. And look at how the writer of Hebrews recounts the suffering of God's people. This is the famous chapter often called the Hall of Faith, where women and men are commended for their great faith in God, for their great trust in him despite circumstances. And you'll notice there's two groups in here that, of the passage that Jeannie read. There's two big groups. There's a group that demonstrated faith in God, and God came through for them. He answered all their prayers. He delivered them. He rescued them. And then there's a great there's a group that had great faith in God, and everything went terrible, and they died. And it's like, wow, the writer of Hebrews is saying, you need to be ready for both. Both are possibilities for you. Look at this. Um, the writer of Hebrews says, gives these examples. You know, God parted the Red Sea. That's Moses, the victory at Jericho. That's Joshua and Rahab, who was not an Israelite, but was saved in her and whole, her whole family for her faith. Those are shining examples. Then he goes on and he says, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection. So lots of biblical stories right there that, we can, that we're all thinking of. And boy, doesn't this sound positive, right? I mean, this sounds like the Bible I want to read. And this sounds like, wow, if you're a person of faith, God's going to come through for you. He's going to prosper you and defeat all your enemies. And you're going to come out on top. And that's the exact kind of thing that fuels the prosperity preaching that you sometimes see on TV, Right? And here's the thing. There's a nugget of truth in the prosperity preachers. And the nugget of truth is sometimes God does answer your prayer. Sometimes he does prosper you in every single way. And everything goes the way that you want. Sometimes, sometimes he does. He comes through in that way that you're asking for. But there's another nugget of truth in the prosperity preachers. And that is someday when Jesus comes with his new kingdom, all of you will be unbelievably prosperous. Someday, when that new world comes, as Christina was talking about, you'll be prosperous beyond your wildest dreams. I mean, think about a neighborhood where they go, hey, uh, we got too many precious metals. What do, you, what do you think we should do with it? Well, I think we should pave with it. And you're paving the streets with gold. That's the kind of gated community you'll live in someday. I mean, that's really prosperous. So the prosperity preachers aren't all wrong in that sense. What they fail to mention is that sometimes on the way to that new world, it's going to get worse and go really, really bad. And that's the second group that we see here. Look at this next group of people, verse 35. This is a sudden turn. Some were tortured, 
refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were sawn in two. It gets worse and worse. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins and sheep of go- and skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Their prayers were not answered. They didn't see it. They stood back and just had to believe it by faith. That's also a possibility. This letter of Hebrews was written around the time of Paul's execution, about mid-60s AD. And it could have also been at the time when the Roman emperor Nero um, was ruling. And Nero was especially cruel and uniquely cruel to Christians. He found um, unbelievable ways of, of killing them and torturing them. And that's what you hear in this passage, all of these strange ways. I mean, skins of sheep and goats, he would dress them in the, the skins of animals and run them around the Colosseum so they'd be torn apart by wild beasts. That's what he would do to them. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, I want you guys to be able to be ready for both outcomes. I want you to have faith to be able to, you know, God may answer you and deliver you and rescue you, and he might not. And I want your faith to be able to endure no matter what. And that's where he comes to chapter 12, verse 1, which makes perfect sense in this context. He writes, therefore, since we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, this great cloud of people who is, for some of them, they had great faith and God came through for them in monster ways. And some of them had great faith and God seemingly didn't answer the prayers or answered them with a no. Seemingly let them be tortured and die, which by the way was all of the disciples, including the apostle Paul. That's what happened to all of them. He says, I want you to be ready for all of these things. He says, there's this great cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. and Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The word race there is the Greek word agon, which is where we get the word agony. And I don't know about you, but I've run a marathon before, and I think that's a good translation. Um, I think that's accurate. Uh, the, the race was pure agony. There were parts where I was cramping and blistering, and I was like, this is awful, just dragging myself to the end. And that's kind of the picture that we get here from Jesus and the writer of Hebrews, that we would, no matter what we suffer in this life, we would endure, we would persevere, we don't quit, we don't give up. And then we have to ask, okay, where do we get the motivation to do that? Where do we get the motivation to live like that? Where do these believers in North Africa or, you know, in Ethiopia, where do they get the, the motivation to keep going? Well, it's right here at the end of our Hebrews passage. We run our race, our agony with perseverance because Jesus has already gone before us and taken our greatest agony. He ran his race with endurance He didn't quit. He took the cross, all our sin, all our shame on him for the joy that was set before him, which was what? It was you and I. That's why Jesus ran his race. That's why he endured. That's why he didn't quit. And Hebrews tells us, keep your eyes fixed on him. He's the author. He's the perfecter of your faith. He will give you the ability 
to run well, to endure well to the end. So when we're tempted to shrink back in fear from the suffering, when we're tempted to run from it saying, oh, no, no, that's too costly, we need only look to him. We need only remember him. And if you remember back to our Luke passage, Jesus wasn't just giving this warning, like it, it probably will go worse before it gets better. He wasn't just giving that warning to the crowd. He was also giving that to himself. Look at verse 50. He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it's accomplished. Here's a man who's like, oh, no, it's going to go bad soon. It's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. That's what I'm headed for. He's reminding himself of that. He knew the baptism he would suffer would be unlike anything any human being had ever endured, ever. That word baptism in the Greek means to submerge or to overwhelm. And Jesus was doing just that. He was submerged. He was overwhelmed in our sin and our agony. It would be the culmination of hell itself placed on him, and the suffering would be nothing short of crushing. But all that darkness would soon be followed by the dawn of Sunday morning. It's always darkest before the dawn. We have to remember that. It's always darkest before the dawn, and that's what Jesus is trying to tell us here. It could get really dark, but remember, Sunday is coming. He wants us to be ready because it's very possible, even likely, that it's going to get worse for you before it gets better. And if you're here today and you're a visitor, I've actually been like, man, I kind of hope there's no visitors today, you know, because uh, this is not the the message you want to lead out with. Seemingly, like, it's like, okay, come and suffer with us. You know, that just doesn't appeal well. You don't put that on the sign for, for the church. But maybe you're like W.H. Auden. You say, look, I believe Jesus because he fulfills none of my dreams. He's not trying to sell me a bill of goods. Like, he's, he's not trying to deceive me. He's not hiding things in the fine print. He's telling me the truth. And if he has that true ring to you today, we welcome you to come to him. There'll be people up here to pray for you. And welcome you into this community that is a community of believers suffering together and preparing to suffer together. As we wait for Jesus' new world where he puts everything right. The end is always good for us, but there's a chance. There's a good chance it could go worse for us before it gets better. And so we would invite you into that community today. For the rest of us, I've been thinking all week, like, how do you get ready for suffering? And maybe you've asked yourself those questions or had those questions asked of you. What would you do if somebody said, you know, confess Jesus or, you know, deny Jesus or we'll kill you? And I just think it's really impossible to do that thought experiment. Like, it doesn't really work. Um, You just have to be put in that position. And no matter how much psychological prep you do, you have to have the Holy Spirit in that moment to confess Christ or to suffer well. The Holy Spirit has to give you that power to do that. So I was thinking, like, how do we prepare well to suffer I think it's really the the advice of Hebrews. We cling to Jesus. We cling to Jesus. We look at Jesus and not just looking at him in the in the way of like, okay, Jesus, we're you know, we're following you, but treasuring Jesus above all else. So because really what is suffering at the end of the day? Um, suffering is just the loss of things. It's just the loss of things that are meaningful and important to us. We lose our health, we lose a loved one, we lose our job, we lose finances, things that are meaningful to us. Suffering is the stripping away of those things that we treasure. Well, if your greatest treasure is Jesus, no matter what you suffer, he can't be taken from you. You cannot lose him. You get that? 
So that's why we're called to treasure Jesus above all else. doesn't mean that you won't suffer as you lose the other good things that God has put in your life, but you'll never lose your greatest treasure if you're treasuring him. So that's my prayer for us, Life Church, that we would be ready to endure suffering by looking at Jesus, fixing our eyes on him, the author and the finisher of our faith, and by treasuring him above all else. Here's the truth, friends. Jesus is not lying to you. It could get worse before it gets better, but Sunday's around the corner. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this word of truth, and we don't always want to hear it, but we're thankful that you always tell us the truth, that you, in fact, are the truth yourself, that you don't hide things from us, you don't sugarcoat it, you don't pull any punches. And we're grateful that not only are you the truth, but you give us the strength to walk out what you've called us to do. And so we just pray, Lord, that you would prepare us now. Prepare our hearts to suffer and to endure well as we wait for your new kingdom to come. Give us that sturdiness, that stout-heartedness by the power of your Holy Spirit and by fixing our eyes on Jesus. It's in his beautiful name we pray. Amen.